Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 350, and I had a conversation with Andy Zink. Andy has spent more than a decade above the Arctic Circle, living among indigenous Alaskans as a school counselor, coach, advocate, and educator. She's the 2019 ASCA School Counselor of the Year. We discussed the villages she's lived in, daily life, and traditions that date back thousands of years. If you'd like to see some of the kids rendering and pelting photos that she sent me, you can check those out at instagram.com slash heyhumanpodcast. There's a trigger warning for this episode. We discuss sexual assault and suicide. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links, Hey Human merch, and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever. My most recent record, All I Ever Wanted, was everything, but I've got other albums as well. Uh, And please check out my Relationships and Sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's super helpful. I really appreciate that. And thank you for listening. Without you, there would be no me. So thank you. And I'm excited to bring you more stories about interesting people. And I really um, just can't believe that we're up to episode 350. It's so wild. Uh, Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Be well. Be love. Take care of each other. And here we go. Andy Zink, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's a, we met on an airplane. I love meeting people on airplanes. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was pretty crazy with all those flights being canceled and oh, what Yeah. So luckily though, that just worked in our favor. We got to Absolutely. be yeah. You fascinated me from the get-go and uh, I just I really enjoyed your energy. And then when you were talking about what you do, the, there was just this light coming off of you. And I thought, wow, this person really loves their work. And so uh, let's dig into you as a person. Where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? Well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And most people would say, yes, East LA. I have a large family, five brothers and three sisters. and Yes. Um, yeah. So it made for a very interesting upbringing. Um, we were never alone. There was always someone or multiples around. Um, so yeah, I, so I, I went to school. I schooled all through high school in um, city of Montebello, you know, lived in Los Angeles and whatnot. So then, and I was actually an athlete. So uh, basketball was my passion at the time. Uh, so I, worked 24 seven, just, I knew I wanted to go somewhere outside of Los Angeles. Um, I wanted to experience the world life outside of just my little core area. So I worked and worked. And so I was able to, uh, travel to Australia and New Zealand and play for a little bit. And then I came back. And at that point, I said, I need to do something with my life. I need to get out. 
Um, Did you have a tight knit family that were they upset that you wanted to go on adventures? No, no, because they, I was the uh, risk taker in the family. I'm kind of the middle child and my mom would often say, you don't stay still. You're very determined. You're just, you're the wild child, so to speak. You know, you do what you want. Uh, <laughs> so I think they all knew I was going to leave and kind of pave my own path. And so, uh, yeah, I left. And no, we were all pretty much, um, there's so many of us. And so we were all heading different directions, pretty close to each other also, as far as uh, in age. So we were all kind of heading out at the same time, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, so then I ended up going up to the state of Washington and went to all community college, played basketball there for two years uh, and uh, tried my hand at volleyball <laughs> for a little bit. And so then after I transferred to Fresno Pacific University, where I played basketball for two years there as well and got my degree and then life happens, you know, um, what was your degree in, in business administration? I was going to conquer the world. I, you know, I was going to do something huge in business, but my passion was always because of basketball and sports being around athletes and youth. I, my passion was always work. Like I, I knew I, I wanted to work with youth, with students in some capacity in education, especially after my upbringing and, and going through school myself, you know, I was one of those students that kind of just flew under the radar, did enough to be recognized, but not enough and not enough to, you know, be in, on the front cover. And then I did enough so that I wouldn't draw attention to myself. Um, yeah. So when I was asked in high school what it was that I wanted to do after I graduated, I said, well, I think I'm going to go to, I want to go to college and maybe become a school counselor. And this was for my school counselor. And he says, well, you know, I don't know if, if, that that'll work out for you. And I said, you know, why not? And he says, you know, it, it takes a lot. And I was just, and, that, and, that, and I kind of sat there and pondered the question. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of what, you know, drive, passion, empathy, you know, and at the time I wasn't really sure what he meant. Um, so I kind of took offense to it. Like, do you not think I'm smart enough? And I think there was a little bit of that taken, you know, my grades. And just like I said, I kind of flew under the radar, kind of a C plus B average student. Um, so yeah. So then I, I went to college. I graduated, got my degree in business administration. Life happens. Got married, had a child. Uh, we ended up adopting my son. So now we know we're this family and I decided like, I, I really want to get back into it. I want to get into education. I want to help students. I want to help youth. Um, I saw the need, especially after having my, after adopting my son, I just, I knew that, that I could, I wanted to help and I could do some good. Uh, so I went back and started teaching high school <laughs> nonetheless and coaching, 
I just got thrown in there and said, here you go. You need, you know, they had an opening, a vacancy for girls basketball and volleyball and just about every sport. It was a small rural community outside of um, the Central Valley. And so I said, okay. And so I was there for five years. I coached uh, and, and I was teaching business and uh, computer literacy, all the electives that you have going towards the business pathway. Did you recognize kids that were reflective of you as you were then? Yes, 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 absolutely. And so when I first started teaching, I, I was thinking more, you know, I need to make sure that I have all my standards. It was more the academia side of it. Uh, but once I got to start making those relationships with the students, I, I did see myself in a lot of them. And so just being that mentor and letting them know like, Hey, you can do it. I did. You can do it as well. doesn't matter, you know, where you come from, who you are, you can make your own pathway. You can make your own way. You can achieve anything you want to achieve so long as you have that grit. Um, and, you know, and that drive. That Sometimes that's all kids need to hear, especially when they have people around them like your counselor was, who they don't outright say, you're not going to do that. They they make it, they couch it in, I'm helping you by, you know, easing you onto some other path, which is, of course, bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was more like, yeah, you just need to graduate and then basically, you know, go into the service industry and you'll be okay. And that was not okay with me. I, my aspirations were to, like I said, you know, see the world, travel, experience life as best and as much as I could. So, you know, I took that into my teaching and I tried to instill in that in, in our young women, especially, you know, um, letting them know that, you know, you can, you, you can do anything you want to do. You can achieve whatever it is that you want. You know, there's supports out there, believe it or not, there's supports, even when you would think there isn't that there are supports, you just have to find them and you have to ask for help. And so that was the first step is uh, teaching them that they can ask for help, that it's okay. You know, there's no shame in it. And I used to tell them even now, you know, as old as I am, because they thought I was, you know, super old. Um, I still ask for help. So I think seeing that it gave them a reassurance that they can also do it and seeing where I came from. And I used to be open about it. Like, you know, this is where I came from. I, there was nine of us. We were single parent household. We were on welfare. We were poor, you know, so it's not what you see on the outside is not what it was. You know, they, they used to see me as, you know, middle class. I kind of had it all. I asked them one time, I said, so when you see me, what do you see? Like, what do you, where do you think I came from? What is it that, that you see when you see me? And that was the first thing they say is like, well, you came from a, you know, a, a good home. You had parents. They were well off. You're middle class. I said, oh, no, <laughs> that is not at all uh, 
you know, my background and whatnot. So yeah, so I did that for five years and I had a really awesome experience. I made a lot of relationships with those students and some to this day, I'm connected to them. So that's really nice to see. And when they see, you know, their accomplishments, like I'm so excited for them. I just like, way to go, you know? Um, And so after that, I took some time off. I wanted to spend time with my daughter, my son, after coaching every sport just about and teaching and all summer, I just, I needed a break and I wanted to be there for my daughter as well. You know, she was, she was little, she was in elementary school. And so I wanted to spend some time with her. I just, I I felt I needed to. And so I took some time off and then I just kind of was substituting here and there. And then I ended up coaching um, her team and we started a nonprofit for uh, travel basketball, which she got involved in and travel basketball. Yeah. It's uh, the AAU travel, um, but we had a chapter down there in Southern California in the Coachella Valley. And so we, we had a group of girls and we used to travel with them. So I was back into coaching and then subbing and, and what, but I was really spending more time with her, which is what I wanted. That was my goal. And then life happens again. And then I move, I decide like, I need to, I, I, there's something missing. I, I, I still feel like I can give more. I, I know that there's youth out there that would, I would hope would benefit from what I, I have to offer. And so I got my uh, counseling degree while I was down in the Coachella Valley um, doing the coaching and the subbing and all that. So I got my counseling degree and then I was looking for a job. And at that time, believe it or not, at that time, um, it was really hard to get a teaching job. And so, or account anything in education, it was really difficult that times were good in education. And so I looked outside of the area, which took me to Alaska. And so I ended up in Northwest Arctic up above the Arctic circle. And that's where, you know, my journey began that I, you know, where I, some of the stuff, the conversation that we had on the plane. Okay. So a couple questions. One, when you got your degree in counseling, did you go back and tell that counselor, screw you? (laughs) (laughs) No, he'd been long retired since then. But in my mind, you know, I, I kind of like getting my degree in counseling was kind of one of those, like, you know what? the double finger slide, you know? (laughs) Yeah. How did you go about telling the family that you were going to be going up to the Arctic? So they thought I was crazy, but they, some, it wasn't a surprise. The surprise was the, the, the geography, but they knew like I would go somewhere outside of the area. Um, yeah. But did they all come with you? I'm sorry. Did they all come with you? No. Mm Mm-mm. No, since so when I was going through my, got my degree and whatnot, so you know, and then I life happened, like I said, and so then you know I got divorced, and and my daughter was in high school, I believe she was a junior, and so um, I just said, you know, I think it's time for me, it's time for me to do what I feel I need to do to give back. Uh, so, yeah, so I ended up up in the Northwest Arctic, up above the Arctic Circle. So I went from temperatures of, 
think at the time that it was 83 in the Coachella Valley. And so when I got up to the village I was at, Salawick, it was, I think at the time it was negative eight or 10. How do you prepare for that mentally and physically? You know, for me, it was not so, I don't don't want to say the the adventure, you know, that's so cliche, but it was, it was, I think I was excited about the possibilities of what I can do, Um, something new, something exciting, Um, being able to put my footprint on something, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And these are remote villages that you began your career in. Yes. Uh, So they're all Inupac, Eskimo Inupac. Um, The village that I first went to was, is Selawick and they have about 800 residents, I believe 800 to a thousand residents. And they're all for the most part, predominantly Inupac. Um, and then I, so the first year I was there, I was, I was one site counselor, which was awesome. I love that experience. It's something entirely just you unimaginable. Like you would never think that people still live like this in the United States. Um, you know, houses don't have running water. They, the heating is a scarce resource. There's no vehicles. (laughs) So you travel by snow machine or quads. Planes come in if the weather is good. If the weather is down, you could go up to two weeks without an airplane, your source of resources. Um, So, yeah. Um, so that was my first year there. How did they handle things like medicine? And I know that they hunt for their own food and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the community is quite bonded and taking care of each other. Yeah. They, so there's a, a clinic in all the villages, a small one, just depends on the size of the village, whether, you know, the clinic uh, is large in size, large meaning probably no more than probably 1100 square feet (laughs) or small, just depending on the village and the size of the village. Uh, So, and they all have like, they call them the native stores, but it's like a general store. They sell everything and they're pretty small as well. They all have a post office and then they have their local um, tribal administration office there. And and law enforcement, some of them are lawless. So they either have a a VPO, village police officer, or a village safety officer. Uh, this town, the village of Selwick, does have troopers there because it's larger, and so there's a need for it. They come in every two weeks. They're on rotation. But some of the other villages that I lived in throughout the eleven years I was up there are lawless. So it's this, the school becomes the epicenter, the administrators become the sheriff in town, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah. So everything's centered around the, the school. The school serves as a hotel for people coming through. 
everything is held at the school, uh, community events, town hall meetings, all of that stuff. Were you, as a counselor, were you finding the issues that were coming in through your door to be much different than the mainland? I think they're because of the remoteness and the size, they were more prevalent. We have some in the lower 48, obviously you have your substance abuse, you have, you know, the alcohol, you have domestic violence. Um, there's a lot of sexual assault. Um, so there's, there was, it just, it, it was more at the forefront because it, there it's small, smaller. Mm. Um, so it's out basically out in public. Yeah. And How would you deal with this situation? Let's say a, a child comes to you who's being assaulted by her father, for example, mm. in that small of a town, you know, normal protocols would be, you would take, you know, she would get her help. You get her out of the house. You would get him help out of the house, but in a place so small, and especially as you call it lawless, how does one deal with those sorts of scenarios? Um, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, so we, obviously you call OCS, which is the office of uh, child services, which is CPS here in, in the state of California. Um, so you, you report, we're mandated reporters. So you report, you, we would try to follow protocol as best as we could under the circumstances, you know, the resources are very limited. So we would make phone calls. We would protect the child, uh, either the child would, uh, stay at school until somebody from the local authorities, uh, OCS, just some agency can come in and take over assume, you know, uh, responsibility for the child or the child would go to the clinic um, and then they would follow their procedures and protocol. Uh, but yeah, reporting is, you know, so important. You can get it. I, it's, we're mandated reporters, so we have to. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it's really out of our hands and we just have to make sure that, you know, when students walk through the door, we just, you know, do a, a check, check in with them, with all of them, just to make sure that their basic needs are being met. And that was the biggest thing is all our students uh, just making sure that, you know, their, their basic needs are being met. Otherwise there's, they can learn, Yeah. No, you know, and so we used to make sure that we had food. I would, we would purchase food, have snacks and, and they all knew that they can come to us. And, and, you know, if they were hungry, there's no way we would ever let them go without, you know, one of the things that uh, kept me there for as long as it did was the, uh, the rate of suicide the suicide ideation and that that's really hard um, to deal with. But when it becomes part of their culture for them, it's just another, it, and I, and I don't want to seem uh, like I'm, what is it? Um, 
like I, they don't care, but I think it because it becomes such so prevalent and, and it it's now become part of their culture that they just it's another day. You know, I mean they 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 still um mourn, but it's not what it is down in the lower 48. Do you think it's a seasonal depression or just a circumstance of, of poverty and I think it's a circumstance of their environment. Um, it just becomes one of those things where they become so desperate and don't feel like they have an out or it, it, it could be anything really. Sometimes we, we didn't even know when we thought, you know, wow, there, was, there weren't any signs. How could this happen? You know? So mm-hmm. it just, yeah, it was, it it's just it's it's a really it's a really sad circumstance for sure any yeah, yeah any time that that's an option that's it's a sad circumstance did you find yourself being welcomed with open arms in this outsider coming in yeah actually uh <laughs> that's one thing about the impact people they are so welcoming they welcome you with open arms they want to feed you they want to show you you know their culture they want they just they're 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 happy people they they love their their environment they love their culture you know but on the flip side they also have the issues that we all do sure with maybe not as much resource as has here or any resources. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I imagine growing up and that's all you know, then that's all you know. It, it's not like bringing somebody, putting them in the hustle and bustle of Los Angeles, for example. Okay, you live here for a month and now you go back to this remote place and then you know what you what you didn't know and it, mm-hmm. that's traumatic. But these are folks that never leave, right? A lot of them don't leave, or if they do, they go to the nearby hub or Anchorage or Fairbanks, but really not outside of the state. Yeah, I had students that hadn't been outside of their village, you know, they, they traveled by snow machine out to the, you know, the, the outlying areas, but never really to the hub or to a city. I mean, so you showed really- me pictures while we were on the plane and you, sh- you showed me one and there were all these houses along the river and you said, do you know why they, they build on the river like that? And I said, I'm fish. I'm not sure. And you said it becomes like, becomes the freeway in the winter. Yeah. Well, that was so fascinating. Yeah, they do. The snow machines right through there. And, and it is the fishing. Uh, the river's their source of uh, economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they get from one village to the next. They know which direction they're going. Whereas a tundra, you can kind of get lost. So, how many different villages over the eleven years did you participate in there? So, actually, all twelve in my region. Uh, I either was assigned to a site as a counselor, or I happened to go to that village for crisis uh, management. Explain that. So when a student dies by suicide, they disperse a 
crisis management team to go out and help the community and the school. That makes and sense. And so I was on that team. And so I traveled to all the villages at one point or another for that. And I'd stay about a week. And because I'd been there for so long, I knew a lot of a lot of the majority of the students in all the villages. And I also was part of a, a program that was called the Youth Leader Program, which started um, as a means to help their peers combat suicide. Yeah, because it causes a chain reaction. Mm-hmm. I remember that from being in high school. A kid killed themselves and, and everyone sprung into action because they were afraid that other kids would do the same. Just... It's just a strange phenomenon. I don't, I don't really quite understand why it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Contagion is one of the things that we really um, worried about. And so, yeah. So I would travel to these, to the different villages whenever there was a crisis and stay there for about a week and just, you know, go through and talk to the students and make sure that they knew that we were there and I was there. And so they saw me coming back every so often. And a lot of times I traveled uh, to train other counselors or to fill in when there was a gap. And so they would see me. And yeah, so I I saw students from kindergarten, second grade, early elementary, uh, all the way up through when they were in high school. And so they'd see me and they're like, Hey, you're back. And now they're sophomores and you know, they're, they're almost adults. And so it was really nice to see. That's something. That, that must be really rewarding to watch a kid grow up like that. Yeah. Yeah. What was something you really missed from the mainland that you didn't have on this journey? And what was something that you really embraced that you are surprised that you embraced? So something I really missed, I guess I could say is fast food. Uh-huh. <laughs> There are no restaurants whatsoever. So everything you eat, you either cook, somebody catches and uh, harvests for you, you know, so you're, you're eating a lot of organic food, which is truly organic because it's right from the tundra. So moose, caribou, lynx, fish, bear, all that's, you know, people wouldn't, the beaver, fox. Just yeah, yeah. So, um, so you learn. There's no vegans up there, I'm sure. (laughs) No, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you would. So uh, that, and and then I can also say that I embraced it, and and you know, I I like moose, I like caribou, and at first I didn't think like, oh no, you know, but I do. I I I miss it. I miss the 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 culture, being immersed into it the way I was. You know, they ask me now because now I'm in Fairbanks. And so they ask me some, you know, friends, they ask me, so do you miss it? And I say, you know what? I do. I, I surprisingly, I do. I miss it. I miss the culture, the, the people, the just how close knit uh, we were. It didn't matter what village you were in. I have friends in every village that just make you feel like it's home. Are all the villages uh, kind to each other or is there any kind of um, rivalry amongst villages? Um, no. And if there is, it's, it's uh, within families and it's not as uh, like the, 
the Hatfield, yeah, Hatfield and the McCoys, yeah. No, <laughs> not, yeah, no, no, nothing like that. Um, you know, you do have some infighting, but uh, but it's not anything huge. Yeah. Did, did you get flown in the vegetables and fruits? Because how do you not get scurvy when there's obviously fruit trees aren't growing there? <laughs> A lot of vitamins and um, yeah, we you can place an order at the local store in the hub and they they'll fly it in and that's delivery <laughs> and you could also order from like the restaurants at the hub and they deliver it on the plane so that that was pretty funny to see like you're like what you're getting your food delivered by plane yeah that's the only way we could get takeout <laughs> that's a hell of a uh what is it, grub hub <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah full of, yeah flying it about 100 150 miles yeah. So, yeah. One of the pictures you showed me, which was incredible to to look at and gory, was in the middle of the gymnasium with the kids, little tiny tots with knives cutting up the the meat of the mm-hmm. kill. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? I thought that was so fascinating. So, yeah, you know, and when, when I show people colleagues of mine, they're like, oh my gosh, they have knives like at school. (laughs) Well, you got to understand it's a whole different uh, environment, region, it's subsistence. And they're actually doing it as a lesson. And so the, the local hunters go out and either hunt caribou or moose and i'm not sure if it was i think it was caribou caribou. yeah i think that was the hunters brought in about four or five caribou and so the cultural teacher uh her takes her classes in and she has from kindergarten to pre-k all the way up to high school and so she'd take her classes in and each one she would show them how to harvest the caribou and so it was all hands-on because that's the way they learn and so a lot of these students already know how to harvest uh, their catch, their prey from going out with their uh, families. And so they're the ones teaching the younger ones. And so they're assuming the role of the instructor because when we're not there, who's going to teach them? And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, there were self-reliance and we're able to take care of each other. And so we had little ones, I think they were second graders, uh, with knives and, and um, all the other, I don't even know what they were using, <laughs> but there were several with knives. Uh, oh, hacksaws because they had to cut through the bone for the, the hoofs and, and the head. And so they were skinning, the little ones were skinning the caribou. And so that was their job. They were skinning. And so the older ones were teaching the younger ones. And they're, yeah, they had the knives. And, and, and it's really surprising, though. They know that they, you don't, a knife is not something to play with, especially when you're working on your prey on your your catch and so we never had any problem with any students from pre-k all the way to high school ever misusing a knife or playing around with a knife or any instrument 
they they really take it serious. And so the student that you may not trust with a pencil in your classroom, you can totally trust with a knife in the gym harvesting a caribou. They had a true look of uh, admiration even for the creature uh, that, that they were harvesting. And I thought also it was interesting Every single piece was being used for something, whether it was yeah. clothing or food or um, oil, I guess, lamp oil. But that's the seal. But yeah, the the they use the skin for, uh, they do mucklucks is what they call them. Um, or they use them for, to cover the bottom of their like housing, you know, so that it's warm. They... They harvest it, and what they do is once it's all harvested, they put it in sections, and they go out and deliver it to the elders in the community. They're the ones that get the first uh, batch, so to speak, of food, and so they take that to the elders, um, and then after that, to the families that are, are in need, higher need, and so kind of like there's a, a hierarchy, and so, you know, the elders, obviously, we need to take care of them, make sure that they have and they don't go without. And so they would be the first ones. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful that they have an understanding. I wish everyone had that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was it was it was really awesome to see and get in there with them and them show me, um, you know, what how to cut what that means, how do we use it, where to put it. <laughs> so it was a whole. It, it's an anatomy lesson, but not in the sense that, uh, like the one we grew up with. And I assume they put you up in housing when you get there? Yeah, there's uh, what they call teacher housing. And so all the school personnel have housing on in the village near the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of the highlights of those 11 years? Oh, my gosh. I had so many. that I don't know. Um, it it can be from one student graduating a class of one and making sure, you know, that they had everything and they were being highlighted and the attention was on them to our little um, pre-Kers and kindergartners um, skiing, doing cross-country skiing, getting out there on the skis and, and going for it. or there was times when we were short subs and we had a couple of students. One in particular would, you know, I would step in or an administrator would step in and, and she would raise her hand and say, that's not how teacher does it. This is how she does it. Let me teach you. Okay. You teach us. <laughs> and they would get up and teach the class. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and just again, the highlights going out fishing and uh, netting and bringing in 50 fish, cutting them up and drying them for, you know, uh, jerky or cutting them up and filleting them and freezing them for future use. The same thing with us. They brought a side of a moose and I had to cut it up and make it into steaks and ground. And so, yeah, all of that. Uh, I it was. I learned a lot, and it was really interesting. And I had a lot of fun doing it. Was it uh, a language barrier at all? Is, I assume they they speak different dialects in the villages. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in UPAC, and I think their their language is some, I guess, new in terms of it being written. I think it was either the 40s or the 60s that it finally uh, was put on paper, like written, a written right. language. It's a pretty new language on paper. Um, there was, they all speak English. Um, so there wasn't really a barrier it's when we were trying to learn in UPAC. And so, you know, I've learned words. They also use a lot of facial expressions. When you ask a student a question or an adult, actually anybody out there, um, a question and they want, they, they, their answer would be yes. They raise their eyebrows. Mm -hmm. So they don't, they don't respond vocally. They, they have a facial gesture. And so they raise their eyebrows and if they don't like something or they want to say no, they just kind of crinkle their nose. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, so that was hard at first. Um, because, you know, you're talking to a student and you expect a response. And, well, they're responding, but they're not doing it the way we're used to it. You know, the westernized way. So, yeah, there's a lot of small things like that that you have to kind of have to get used to. What made you decide to go then after the 11 years to go to Fairbanks? And then was that suddenly feeling like a big city, which is hilarious to me? <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I think for me, it was, it was time, um, the, the weather, the elements, oh my gosh, negative 60, negative 70, you know, it can get up to negative eighties with wind chill factor, the travel, it, it would take me about a day and a half to two days to get out of the village and to get from point A to point B. So I'd spend two days traveling. It just after a while, that's the part that takes its toll on you because you're still an outsider. You're not, you're, even though you're part of the community, you're still an outsider. You know, that's not like, that's not home, home. You still have family out in the lower 48 or, you know, elsewhere. Um, so it's, it's daunting trying to get, especially during the winter when the weather, you're at the mercy of the weather. And I, for me, it was just, I, I was, it was time. I was getting exhausted, you know, shipping in food. So you have to ship in your staples and Amazon, you know, they say, well, it'll be there by Thursday, you know, four days. Well, for us, it was a Thursday, but didn't, you know, <laughs> it could have been next week or next month. So it's just, <laughs> it's like, you'll get it on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not that Thursday that you have, um, that they have posted on there for you. So yeah, no, it was just, it was time. Yeah. And you're doing the same thing in Fairbanks and you just come back and forth to Los Angeles. So I'm in, no, I'm, well, I live in Fairbanks. I actually have a house there. I live there and my boyfriend lives down here. And so, so I'm down here. Yeah. So I travel back commute. Nice. That's a pretty, the Alaskan Airlines, good. that's an easy commute, I imagine. Mm -hmm. It is now. From now? <laughs> I go from Fairbanks to Seattle to Los Angeles or, you know, just Fairbanks to Portland and then Southern California, either Ontario, LA, just depending on where I'm going. Now, were you dating each other when you lived in the villages? No. 
Okay. I was going to say, boy, how do you do that? That's got to be. Yeah. Hard. hard. It's hard as it is. Yeah. It's hard as it is now with, you know, being up there, but yeah. was there much of a social life up there? No, no, no. And, and for me, it was um, really about my job. You know, I really, I really immersed myself into it. I loved what I did. I was with students. Yeah, at all hours, we had open gym till 11. And sometimes the students didn't want to go home. So we'd say, okay, till midnight. And yeah, so I really focused on on my job as, as a person helping and doing whatever I could to make their lives a little bit easier. I've got to ask, have you ever been on a sled dog situation? Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, yeah, I was. I was. I had a friend who had a dog team and so a sled team. And so we'd go out and I have pictures. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And then on a boat when we went netting, set nets and then, you know, pulling the nets with the fish and um, went out uh, snowmobile riding out to the tundra. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I've had oh. some really awesome adventures. Has the climate fluctuations hurt them in terms of how they harvest food or how they're sustaining their their daily life? It it actually has um the caribou migration um isn't as uh it, I guess it gets it's been rerouted because of where they go and and find i guess food and and um their pattern has been interrupted there's mining so that's interrupted the way they migrate and so now instead of going through some of the villages that they used to they somewhat go around there's less numbers of caribou there there's also a road that they're they're in negotiations uh going from Fairbanks into the interior and so some of the and that's where some of the locals have a difference of opinion some want it some don't some want it because they see that they can get more resources out into the villages others don't want it because it's going to interrupt their subsistence lifestyle um, it's gonna basically, you know, um, change the way that they that they live, that they know, that they've known for thousands of years, and so so it has fish also. So it has the. I think climate has changed some of it. Uh, the the winters aren't as frigid as they were. I'm being told. Mm-hmm. So for long periods of time, they used to have temperatures of minus 40 for weeks. Now it's, you know, maybe a week, depending on where you're at. Yeah. So it's, it's changing. It's, it's a hard on the landscape too, because I think people don't understand one of the, I'm, for people listening, they're like, oh, that's great. It's not so cold. That must be so nice. But when a, when a land changes that rapidly, 
the plants, the animals, they don't have time to adjust. They don't have time to evolve. And so things die off. Uh, they don't come up. They don't sprout. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't come by, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah. the permafrost. It changes the way the water pH is, Mm -hmm. which then affects the fish and the, and the sea life or the river life. It's, it causes major problems really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you have some of the wildlife coming into the villages, looking for food, you know, wolves and bears, they're trying to survive. And, you know, just recently up farther North at a village, a polar bear uh, killed a small child and his mother mm. right outside the doorsteps of the school. Oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it does. It has, I, I, I think, but you know, I think too, I think it has major ramifications for mm-hmm. sure. What is your, what is the plan? What's coming for you? You're going to stick around and well, no, I, I, I'm moving South. I'm coming back home. You are? Yeah. Because you're in love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yay. You're an awesome man. So, yeah. Otherwise, I think I'd still be up there. I wouldn't think twice. And, you know, and I told him that, that my mom used to ask me about seven years ago. So you're never coming home, are you? Like, you're not moving back. And I said, no. I said, Alaska is home, mom. I, I'm going to stay there. Like, I didn't have any intentions of moving back until now. <laughs> Yay. All right. Now, are you going to continue um, to be in the school system here? I hope so. I do. I mean, that's my goal. I, I still want to, you know, be a school counselor. I still want to make an impact in students' lives, hopefully. Um, I still love doing what I do. Pop over to some of the colleges around here and talk about your experiences. And especially for people that are studying that way of life, you have a hands-on knowledge. That's an avenue I haven't really explored. (laughs) So possibilities. Well, it's exciting. I, I just think it's your story is so fascinating and interesting and lovely and uh it's heartwarming as well to think because i think we don't let's be honest most people going about their day don't think about the folks that are in these villages in the far corners of the united states of america yeah Yeah. they are a part of the united states of america they are they are and it's are they interested in politics up there are they voting i mean i'm sure it concerns them especially when it comes to pipelines and things that the environment um the second amendment is huge you know the hunting and and the right to bear arms um so there is local government there's a lot because of the differences, you know, someone, some see it as progress, others see it as um, you're taking away what we have, you know, Um, you're taking away my, my life, my culture, my, you know, my, the way, you know, our way of being. Um, They've done that once we're not going to let it happen again. And by that, I mean, you know, they, they, 
they came in and they were removed from the homes and taken to schools like they did the Native Americans in, in you know, the lower 48. So they did the same thing up there. And so they see it like that. It's a threat. And so you have the local government's politics playing a huge role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But are they, are they as in, is there excitement for being participatory in things like uh, governorship and presidential? Um, Senatorial? Not, not as strong in the villages because yeah. we're so remote. Yeah. You know? um, Lisa Murkowski came out several times to our villages. Um, she's, she's actually a, a supporter and, and uh, of the people out there. Yeah, she's, I, I like her. You know, it's really interesting. She's pretty, we took a group of students from our village to Washington, D.C., and she knew we were coming. And so we were un- going from, where were we? I don't even remember where we were. Anyway, underneath, you know, how you get from when mm-hmm. underneath they travel. Through and the so, yeah. Yeah, the tunnel down below. And so she was, we were walking, they were giving us a tour and we were walking and she happened to walk out and we stopped and looked at each other. I'm like, hey, she's like, hey. (laughs) So, you know, she recognized us and whatnot. So, so that was nice. And she talked to the students and then we met up with her later at the front steps of the Capitol building. So that was nice. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's not as, as strong there as it is in the cities in the larger cities. Yeah, like Anchorage, Juno, Fairbanks. How can people find you if they want to see photos? Do you do you have an Instagram that you post things to? No, you are not. No. Well, send me some photos that I can put on when I okay. your episodes so that people can look. And you know, trigger warning: if you don't like to see animals cut open, yes. it is fascinating to see how other cultures and and peoples live their everyday lives. I think it's important that we need to see how we all are. Yeah. We still, yeah, we still, there's still people that do that. And, and, you know, some of us down here in, in the big cities just think, you know, you go to the store and you buy it packaged. No, this is from, you know, out in the wilderness to the table. So six year old did that. Yes. (laughs) Come on. That's so just fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andy, for, for being a part of the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. Thank you for (laughs) listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.